Okay. Come here. <coughs> Come here so you don't disrupt us for a bit. No disruption, please. Just, like, lie down. Thank lie you. down and be quiet. Lie down, be quiet, be let quiet, me pet you. Be quiet, we are recording podcast. Oh, no. We record podcast. We are. Okay. Kitty, settle. This some general uh, Eastern Europe, uh, Russia thing, which makes sense if we are doing spooky for mm. Transylvania. Oh, yes. Are you a good witch? Or a bad bitch, bad bitch, bad bitch. I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if it's naughty to rule your lips, take your shoulders, take your hips, and let a lady confess I want to be there. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. Hey, Hannah. <laughs> Hey, Deanna. How you doing? You feeling spooky? I'm feeling spooky. That's good. You've got like a beautiful pink halo Ooh. above you because the way this room is lit right now. So, it's oh, a, yeah. so it is a little bit like neon spook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've got our, our, oh no. The battery ran out. The battery ran out on the Stranger Things thing. Yeah. Oh, well. oh well. Well, we've got a tapestry behind me that has the Stranger Things um, alphabet with the lights strung yep. across it. And yep. normally the lights light up, but the batteries are now out. we're lighting some black candles. Yes. Yes. We're Halloweening this shit up. Ooh. Ooh. It's the spooking season. That's my favorite season. <laughs> I know. That's also my new favorite way to refer to it. You're welcome. Yes, I appreciate. I don't know where I got it from, but... I don't know, but it's my new thing. Um, And we're bringing you uh, on Good Witches, Bad Bitches. A spooktacular spooktacular double feature. Double stuff. Which is what we did last year. Yes, it is. Yep. Um, this year, it's we're going on a little bit of a hiatus after. Yes, because you're going to be shooting a short film. We're shooting a short film, which BT Dubs, we are crowdfunding right now on Indiegogo. I'll uh, post links to that in our um, show notes. But it's a vampire story, so it's very appropriate. And it's sapphic. Yes, yes it is. So there's a little bit of gayness to it, which mm-hmm. is cool. Yep, yep. Um, perfect for spooking season. And I donated, so... Yes, you did. Why haven't you? Because um, they're gonna now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Thank you, by the way, Deanna. You're welcome. I appreciate you. I appreciate you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> okay, so what are we doing on our double-stuffed, spooktacular double feature? All right. That sounds so- like weird porn. <laughs> Oh, boy. I mean, there's some weird stuff in this, so. There's lots of weird stuff. You know, there's lots of weird stuff. I'm going to tell you about something, and I'm doing this a little selfishly. Okay. Because I have been, I've been, you know, whining and whining forever about wanting a book revolving around the satanic panic. Oh. And because I get a lot of submissions that don't understand what the satanic panic is, they think it's like literally the devil and, you know, demon hunting and supernatural type stories. That's interesting. Um, it is interesting. That that's how people interpret that. But what is what's especially interesting about that is it proves how little our society and our culture really knows or remembers about the satanic panic. Yeah. Which was pretty recent. Yeah. Like it's not a... It's not something that, you know, happened in the 20s that is minor that we would not remember. No, it remember. was like the 80s, right? It was the 80s. It was the it was the 80s and early 90s, and it was a 
moral panic that felt very, very similar to the Salem witch trials. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I thought to talk about it is because even though the satanic panic affected both men and women, it's very much, it's it's predicated by, like, things that were, you know, uh, female-centric. Yeah. In terms of. Yeah, yeah the trials and whatnot i actually just listened to uh the dollop did an episode about ronald reagan oh that's interesting because that kind of does factor in a little bit Uh, yeah and uh nancy reagan was very very well weirdly into astrology and psychics and stuff but then also constantly talking about how the dangers of orgies that were happening in her backyard like she was very paranoid and very yeah all about like the devil taking over while also consulting astrologers and psychics all the time. Yeah. So she was not alone. And what's super interesting about that particular time period is like the United States was really prosperous Uh and there was um, the rise of the double income family and the nuclear family. There was like a lot of family focused prosperity happening. And so the, the, danger of things lurking in the shadows was especially prominent because there was even more at stake right for the american family right and so yeah the reagans are are a big part of that because of that whole like time period and how they brought that on they were huge assholes too <laughs> yeah. not just politically but just as people yeah not as i great. learned <laughs> so yeah so i'm going to talk about the satanic panic let's and do it spookin I have to give credit um, to the podcast You're Wrong About, which I love. And they're, one of their very first episodes is about the satanic panic. And it's, it's one of the things that I listened to when I was first becoming even more interested in it. Yeah. Well, and I think Sarah Marshall, who's one of the co-hosts, mm-hmm. is writing a book about the satanic panic right now. She is. Yeah. You're right. I mm-hmm. totally forgot about that. Yeah. Oh, Sarah Marshall, query me. Mm-hmm. I wish she listened to this. Um, so my if sources, only. I know, my sources today are, are not that podcast, but history.com, mm-hmm. snopes.com, which Makes had sense. a great article about it, yeah. time.com, and PS Mag. Oddly, I don't know why PS Mag had a great article, but they did. Um, and one of the reasons this is timely is because just a couple of years ago, um, this was the whole situation was back in the papers because a few people were finally released from prison after like 20 years in prison for their supposed involvement in this moral panic. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it's it's very relevant even today. But they weren't... Okay. No. I'll tell you. Gonna, I'll tell you I'll all about them. Yeah. So I liked this opening paragraph from, from Snopes.com because it just rounds it out. But it starts, Accusations flew of sacrifice, drinking blood, sexual abuse, and the invocation of demonic forces. But it wasn't Salem, and the year wasn't 1692. The conviction of Daniel and Francis Keller took place in Travis County, Texas, three centuries later, amid what became, quite literally, a modern-day witch hunt. Yep. Yep. Uh, It started when the Kellers were accused of sexually abusing a troubled three-year-old girl. Right, at like a daycare. Yep. Correct? She was a visitor at Fran's daycare, uh, Fran, Fran Keller, and the couple was running the daycare out of their Austin home. The couple was convicted in 1992, 
And they spent 21 years in prison until they were freed in 2013, but not until after an investigative journalist and an attorney, totally separate from the original case, looked into their case and discovered it was riddled with outlandish accusations, inconsistent testimony, and undisclosed exculpatory evidence. Also ridiculous that nobody picked up on it then. They were in the middle of it. They were all freaked out and Satan was a, you know, a big scary dude and this, you know, inspiring all of these people to do crazy things oh and God. they just could not fucking see what yeah. was right in front of them. Lord. The Kellers were not the only ones to face outlandish charges. In the 1980s and early 90s, a phenomenon that has since become known as the Satanic Panic was sweeping the nation. A confluence of societal factors led to widespread hysteria about Satanists who were hidden in plain view and running clandestine national child sex abuse rings. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Hundreds of people, many of them daycare workers, were accused of abuse, including the McMartin family in California and Margaret Kelly Michaels in New Jersey. Mm. The difference is the McMartins were eventually uh, exonerated, which the Kellers were not. Until 2013. Wow. On uh, June 20th, 2017, Travis County District Attorney Margaret Moore filed a motion to dismiss the case against the Kellers. The couple described in an interview with a local television station their horror at hearing that they had been found guilty in 1992 and sentenced to 48 years in prison for abusing this child, this three-year-old girl. Fran Keller, fuck? yeah, Fran Keller tearfully recounted uh, fainting while being led out of the courthouse because, like, it was so absurd that they were even convicted at all. Yeah. Uh, the Kellers may well have spent the rest of their lives in prison had it not been for an investigative reporter at the Austin Chronicle who wrote an article in 2009 where she finally, like, went and looked at the evidence against these people and found that it was all total conjecture and hearsay and not nothing had there was no evidence against them at all wow yeah (laughs) so she finally she actually asked um an austin-based attorney named keith hampton to look into their case and he was like yeah sure i mean i will take this on and i'll do it for free in 2010 and he said the more i dug into it and checked out witnesses i just couldn't believe it in in 2010 he tried to get the court to enter an opinion reconsidering their guilt and the court actually said no they were like no we're happy with them being in prison despite the fact that your case has like no No evidence yeah um but it's it didn't have legs back then either right but people were so freaked yeah so he kept on it it. didn't matter he kept on it because it was it was totally ridiculous and he wrote a little bit for snopes about the outrageous sounding accusations um And basically, investigators and others in the case were swept up in this hysteria of the times so fully that they scoured the records of at least eight airports searching for a mythical airplane which could land in a residential neighborhood, kidnap children from daycare, deposit them in Mexico where they were supposedly molested, and then return them with no one noticing. So that's something that... That's something that some of these kids at the daycare said happened to them. They took us to Mexico in an airplane and then brought us home before dinner that night. Police equipped a helicopter with an infrared camera and flew over at least 11 cemeteries in search of sites of human sacrifice, which is another thing these children were alleging had happened. 
They searched everywhere and investigated everyone, even remotely suspected of nefarious supernatural activities. And while detectives investigated other detectives and parents with police participation, um, parents took four-year-old children to various cemeteries across Travis County and encouraged them to roam around grave sites in an effort to identify satanic activities. Oh, my good God. So, I, <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> Literal, and, like, five-year-olds. They're like, go tell us where this, where Satan is. Yeah. And what's crazy is... What the fuck? So something that, that Sarah mentioned in the You're Wrong About podcast, if, I rem- if I'm remembering correctly, was, like, how, how one of these kids talked about one of the daycare workers flushing them down the toilet... Because that's possible. Because that's possible. And them riding through the pipes down into a basement where sacrifices were happening. And these children were then, after being flushed down the toilet, asked to participate in human sacrifice. Did they dig around in the piping to see? Probably. (laughs) Fucking probably. If there was a child-sized hole secretly in a toilet somewhere. So these are the things that these kids are saying. So that would literally kill you. I know. If you were flushed down a toilet, if, even if the piping was yeah. sized correctly, that would kill you. Yes. You would suffocate and drown. Yes. Yep, exactly. The facts of this case demonstrate how fully an episode of Mania can envelop even intelligent, educated people. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. This recurring psychological phenomenon can produce devastating consequences in the criminal justice system, as it did for the Kellers. This court should recognize, this is what Hampton is saying, uh, this court should recognize it now and publicly identify it through a published opinion to inform future courts, prosecutors, and lawyers. When the next hysteria blows through the criminal justice system, there will at least be a benchmark in Texas law that shows that there is no precedent for prosecuting hysterical cases like that. So, like, that was one of the things about taking on this case for Hampton on behalf of the Kellers was like making sure that other manias that we end up going through as a country aren't like there's no precedent for letting them go through the criminal justice system. Right. Hampton told Snopes that he observed yet another panic play out in the United States even more recently. It did not rise to the level of criminal prosecutions, but it was a panic no less. And I didn't even think about about this, but it was the creepy clown sightings in Halloween in 2016. Yes. Oh, my God. That was such a big thing. Yeah. And And people started panicking about it. Yeah. Which contributed to people wanting to go dress up like clowns and walk around more. Exactly. Like they wanted to just perpetuate it. Which is funny because that's when It came out. Is it? 2016? Yeah. Oh, the first one? Yeah. Shit. I didn't realize that. I did look it up a little bit in... um, Time.com wrote in 2016 that the frenzy was born in South Carolina in late August that year after unsubstantiated reports surfaced that clowns were spotted trying to lure children into the woods. Literally all children are afraid of clowns now. I know. There's not... That's... I know. While while many of the reported sightings across Alabama all the way to Wisconsin were hoaxes, a handful of the incidences incidents resulted in arrests oh my lord yeah in alabama at least seven people faced felony charges of making a terrorist threat connected to quote clown related activity (laughs) who's the real clown in this situation uh rainbow city police chief jonathan Mm. horton 
the incidents just kept going and um, a Connecticut school district said it was banning clown costumes and any symbols of terror and symbols of terror uh uh-huh and an armed clown hoax temporarily put a massachusetts college on total lockdown wow yeah i didn't realize that this was like so recent but that's that's another example of like this weird panic that we go into yeah so i'm gonna go back a little bit because the satanic panic like the roots of it start as early as the 60s, well, obviously it starts with the witch trials. Like, we've had moral panics all throughout our history. But, you know, in the 60s and 70s, it really was starting to... Uh, gain traction. Gain traction and make it possible for all the shit that happened in the 80s. So in the 60s, the Manson cult mm-hmm. uh, murdered a bunch of people. Yep. So that's fun. And in the same summer, 1969, the Church of Satan was officially founded. Which actually, the Church of Satan's pretty great. Yeah, but like the name alone, I think, was terrifying for people. Sure. Even though a lot of the Bible itself was like just cobbled together from random books, other random books, like even Ayn Rand. And did they say Ayn Rand or Ayn Rand? I think Ayn Rand is how you're supposed to pronounce it. I always forget that. No, I think, or is it Ayn Rand? Ein. Fuck. Ein Rand. I say Ayn Rand. That's what. That's the problem because I had a philosophy teacher who was like, she's fucking bullshit. So I refused to pronounce her fake name correctly. <laughs> right. And I was like, all right. So throughout that whole semester, it was Ayn Rand. There you go. So that's what I call her. So, But I think it's Ayn Rand. We'll go with Ayn Rand, but I liked both of our versions. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like the, 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 the satanic Bible was just not even really all that serious. You know? No, it's it's just a reaction to the Bible. Yeah. And but, it's more like some of this is really awful. So here's what the opposite of that awful shit says. Yep. yep. And they tend to actually be pretty decent folks. I know. I know. So after that, The Exorcist, the book The Exorcist was published in 1971. With its mm. claims of being based on a true story, The Exorcist profoundly impacted America's collective psyche regarding the existence of demons. Oh, and, for sure. That's definitely based on a true story. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. Did you yeah, see yeah. my sarcasm face? Yeah. I was like, um. Deanna? Are you okay? <laughs> what? But it also like made people really terrified of the Ouija board, which I used love to be. I know. It used to be just like a fun, like, you know, parlor kind of game. And then The Exorcist totally turned it into uh, something else entirely. And that terrified people. Um, And then there was a memoir published in 1972 called The Satan Seller. Uh-oh. And it was a fabricated memoir by a self-proclaimed Christian evangelist. Oh, boy. And the book claimed that he was in a satanic cult when he was a kid and that he served as a satanic high priest and was engaged, among other things, in ritualistic sex orgies. That's what Nancy fucking Reagan was terrified of. Satanic sex orgies. It's because of this guy. It's because of this guy and other fucking Christian evangelists like him who were very, very into saying, the devil is real, Satan is real, and the Satanists are, they have cults now. Like, if there were this many orgies going on, it just seems like they were jealous. (laughs) Like, I'm not getting invited to any of these orgies. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's it. Um... Let's see. I know orgies happen, but I don't think they happen as often as satanic panic people would like them to believe they do. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. They just, they really created 
a bunch of a bunch of different things created this idea and we just took it at face value right you know um there was a, a memoir published in i think 1979 called michelle remembers oh boy which i didn't talk about in my in my notes but it's basically a girl who's like, I was in a satanic cult and here's my memoir about being growing up in a satanic cult. And it sold hundreds of thousands of copies and, and lots and lots of. Yeah, I mean, I think I think ultimately it was. But a lot of people read that book and a lot of people were terrified of it. Of their own neighbors. Mm-hmm. Yes. The 70s, interestingly, saw the rise of other self-proclaimed former Satanists who insisted that the world was being run by ritualistic satanic witch cults. And all of these men, <clears throat> yes, men, grew up in Southern California and seemed to declare that the world was full of dark occult symbols and far-reaching satanic conspiracies. This is the Illuminati now. All of them claimed to have conversion experiences to Christianity that made their stories very appealing to the church. Surprise! And this one I thought um, you would appreciate. There was a cartoonist called Jack Chick, who used his fabricated claims of prior Satanism as a basis for numerous comic-style pamphlets advocating against Satanism. So Jack Chick, and if you live in New York, you may have found some of his pamphlets all over the place, because I've seen him in a few places. Oh, Chick Tracks! Chick Tracks. Yep, Chick Tracks. (laughs) They are these, like, very fundamentalist evangelical Christian comics that talk about, like, how horrible Satan is. They are hilarious. They're pretty funny, but people took them at face value. Yeah. Well, and they're still, so they're, they're like, evolving now. Mm -hmm. So they have, like, Chick Tracks. Generally, it's, like, all white people in them. Yeah. But now they've started to create uh, Chick Tracks that are uh, revolving around black families. Oh, to try <laughs> and uh, be oh my god more appealing. So Jack Chick was a big part of the of the rise of the Satanic Panic because of these comics that he was no creating and distributing. Um, and then of course there were all of the serial killers in the seventies. Oh yeah, there was the Zodiac Killer, the Alphabet Killer, both of whom utilized ritualistic patterns in their killings. Yeah, um, neither of whom were ever caught. Uh, There was Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, the Hillside Stranglers, and David Berkowitz, a.k.a. the Son of Sam. Yep. And all of them sparked mass panic. Golden State Killer. Golden State Killer. Um, Yeah, that's true. The Snopes article came before that, before that arrest. Uh, So many of these well-publicized serial killers maintained an image of having the upper hand in some way. They wrote taunting letters. Uh, Bundy escaped from prison and immediately resumed his terrifying killing spree. John Wayne Gacy hid his evil under the most banal of disguises, a friendly clown clown who performed for children. Uh, So, yeah, it was just like terrifying. It was a fucking terrifying time. And then all of this coincided in the 80s with um, the rise of feminism and the idea that you should actually believe children when they say they've been hurt. Which there is something really valid about that. There is something very valid about that. But what, where that came from were all of these like cases of child molestation and incest and abuse that were discovered only years later, despite the children and these families saying, hey, I was harmed. 
by by a priest or a person in a position of power. Exactly. That the family was like, okay. Exactly. And so feminists were like, hey, believe women, believe children. Mm -hmm. And so that ended up tipping us over too far so that we basically were just like, okay, anything a child says is... It's what happened, and that is that. Well, and children are also incredibly um, malleable. Mm-hmm. And when you, we've learned in psychological experiments that have been done that when you put a person, an adult person, with a person in a position of authority, they will do what they say or whatever. So there were, forgive me, like, uh, let me know if I'm wrong here, but there were lots of psychologists involved in this who were leading the children in their answers, and they most of the time didn't even really know it. Some of them maybe did. Yeah. But it was like they were asking leading questions that inspired the children's imaginations to go fucking buck wild. Yep. And that came that (laughs) came out of this tradition, this like this uh, several decades worth of fuel Mm -hmm. that sort of bubbled over in the 80s and caused started to cause this really powerful panic. And then, of course, Reagan was elected and we had this like really happy time. And so people were terrified of that being taken from them. Mm -hmm. They did not want to see their very happy nuclear family ruined or destroyed in any way right and and then of course that alongside this brand new idea that you should listen to children when they tell you something is wrong Mm -hmm. created the idea of stranger danger yep we didn't really have that before we didn't have stranger danger um so nathan hampton the keller's lawyer said to snopes it was really remarkable to see all of these institutions at the time, buy into the idea that there was an international conspiracy of Satanists out to recruit kids and somehow brainwash them so that later on when they become adults, you could sort of snap your fingers and they would go into this satanic trance. Like, that was the thinking. That would take some serious organization that I don't think mankind is capable of. I know. But you know what? That was that coincided with this rise of Christian fundamentalism where they literally believed in angels and demons. They literally believed the devil. They still do. And they still do. They still do. But it, it was just like more as crackpots generally. Today. Yeah. Yeah. But like it was, a, it was international at the time, which is why when you have kids saying my, my daycare worker flushed me down the toilet, you send that daycare worker to prison. You right. know what I mean? At the time. So then, of course, um, I talked a little bit about the McMartins, but the whole panic really came to a head with the McMartin preschool case Mm -hmm. when allegations of satanic ritual abuse at the Southern uh, California preschool led to a lengthy and expensive prosecution featuring hundreds of children. Oh, man. The $15 million case ended in 1990 with zero convictions. But by that time, the country... hundreds of children. Hundreds. Zero convictions, hundreds of children, millions of dollars. And now the country's in a full-blown hysteria. Mm. Aided in no small part by the efforts of televangelists, psychologists, and TV talk show hosts. Oh, boy. Oh, yes. So Nathan Hampton said that um, TV hosts did a lot to spread this because a bunch of, like, Geraldo Rivera and Sally Jesse Raphael did a bunch of specials. And uh, in 1988... 
there was a report, a special report for NBC called Devil Worship, Exposing Satan's Underground. Oh, boy. Where Rivera warned viewers that a, quote, secret network of more than one million Satanists was using secret messages in heavy metal music and other nefarious no. methods to spread their agenda. Oh, my God. And this shocked me. Even Oprah Winfrey entered the fray on her show in 1989, interviewing Michelle Smith, subject of Michelle Remembers. Oh, no. And others who had recovered repressed memories of ritualized satanic abuse through psychotherapy. And we've basically realized that the majority of quote-unquote repressed memories are bullshit repressed, in psychology, right? Yes, yes. So there are a bunch of psychotherapists <clears throat> who came to, like, the public's mind at the time, not just not just the one who was especially involved in these children cases, Donna something, I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll come to her later, um, but a bunch of people were, were like, I help children recover their repressed memories and I believe in satanic ritual abuse. And so what they would do is they would, quote, hypnotize these children and then they would say, were you abused? How about your dad? Was he a cult leader? Don't you remember that time that you maybe, you know... This leading bullshit. It was very leading. And so what they ended up doing was implanting memories. And these people thought it was real. Mm Mm-hmm. That they were discovering real things that yeah. they thought they had repressed. Have you ever heard of Teal Swan? Yes. She is somebody who underwent psychotherapy for repressed memories, and now she teaches repressed memory hypnosis in yes. her own um, workshops. Teal Swan is a cult leader. She's like a YouTuber, right? She's a YouTuber, and, and she's a cult leader. I think they've, well... Maybe they've said for sure that that's what she is. But yeah, she like hosts these very expensive retreats. She has lots of followers. She is on YouTube and she talks about how repressed memory therapy is like her calling card because the woman who was involved in the the, the prominent psychologist who was involved in the satanic, uh, all these satanic cases helped her also recover her own repressed memories of being of, in a satanic cult. abuse, yeah. yeah. So like... We still have someone operating today as a cult leader who brings on thousands, if not millions of followers into this idea, but it has been thoroughly debunked. I have to say, it's 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 nuts. I've been listening to a podcast called Cults Oh, that they delve into. It's like two episodes per cult. Oh. It's 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 very actually lighthearted considering the material. They're like, yes, John, tell me about this. And that's not the right name, but it's like, <laughs> well, funny you should say that because blah, blah, blah. But the, oh. it's actually really good information, really cool stuff. Um, but they talk about a lot of cults and how they. it's like the shit was happening in the 80s or 90s. Mm-hmm. The leader has been thoroughly debunked mm-hmm. and is either dead or in prison or something. And there's still thousands of followers who are still part of it. Yeah. And new followers coming every day. Every day. And it's like, what the fuck? I know. I know. I think that's why it's really important that Nathan Hampton, the lawyer, is and and did work to sort of establish this precedent for not prosecuting cases that are that are a product of this mass hysteria, these mass moral panics, because there's more coming. Yeah. It's not just clowns. Right. You know, like this repressed memory stuff is actually still very prominent and it's yes. a problem. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it is it is so crazy. Um 
Yeah, I, I did. I wanted to mention the West Memphis Three. Okay. If anyone remembers who they are, because they are also a product of the Satanic Panic. Um, they were freed in 2011 in an Alfred plea, which is basically a plea that says, like, yes, I I admit that I am guilty, but because you don't have enough evidence to keep me, you're letting me free. So there's a guilty plea on your, like, it, sta- it says weird. guilty on your record, but you're allowed to go free. Okay. So it kind of sucks because, like, if you're not guilty, it sucks. I feel like that shit happens all the time. But it does. It happens all the time. You plead guilty in order to exchange for your freedom. Yes. But they were convicted um, in 1994, these three boys, of the sexual assault and murder of three younger boys. And they uh, they served more than 18 years in prison for this murder. But they went to prison when they were kids? They went to prison when they were teens, like, Ooh. just on the edge, just on the on the line um, and D- there was no DNA evidence ever to show that they were connected at all. Oh, God. I wonder who actually did kill those boys. Well, that's the thing. Is there the real killer is is still free, I assume, today, unless he was convicted for something else. Um, but just to refresh your memory or anyone else's memory, the bodies of three eight-year-old boys, Christopher Byers, Steve Branch, and Michael Moore, were found naked and hogtied in a drainage ditch in a wooded section of West Memphis, Arkansas. 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 Um, uh, Investigators initially had few solid leads. However, because the bodies appeared to have been mutilated, rumors circulated about a possible connection to satanic cult activities. Oh, Jesus Christ. A tip eventually led investigators to focus on the teenage Damien Eccles, a high school dropout who grew up poor. He was interested in witchcraft and regularly wore black clothing. Oh, no. Black clothes. Mm -hmm. Every New Yorker. Run for your life. Yeah. Side note, I follow him on Instagram, and he is still a witch, and he is awesome. Oh. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So look him up. Then uh, his friend or acquaintance, Mish Kelly, confessed to the murders following a lengthy investigation. Like, basically, they interrogated him in a room for a super duper fucking long time until he confessed. And he implicated Damien Eccles and the other person, um, Baldwin. Mish Kelly was described as having a below average IQ, was led in the investigation. God, that happens way too frequently. He gave a lot of details that conflicted with the actual crime. And they, so there was no DNA evidence. There was nothing to connect these, these kids except for his confession, which he later recanted. But they were still sent to prison anyway because they were all fucking into heavy metal music and witchcraft. Sweet. Fun, 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 fun. So that kind of gives you a sense of like what was scaring people at the time. In the in Fran and Dan Keller's case, it was a young girl named Christy who started the whole thing after she started seeing a psychologist named Donna David Campbell. That's the late that's the lady who believed in ritual abuse and in using hypnosis to recover repressed memories in abused children. She uh, Christy said after she had visited with this therapist that Dan Keller had spanked her and then after continuing her sessions, decided that actually he had sexually abused her and then implicated Fran and then got they got all these other kids involved. Oh, boy. Yeah. And this is fucking insane. At their trial, a psychologist who had never interviewed this girl before was considered the expert witness for the prosecution. His Wait. name was Dr. Noblet or Noblet. And he is still he still has his license to. um Ther- therapeutize people. 
<laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> thank you. That's my new word. But he testified about the existence of cults using ritual abuse and of organized satanic networks engaged in wide-ranging criminal enterprises, oh including child abuse. And he basically was like, yes, these things exist. And no, I've never spoken to Christy before, but I can tell you with 100% certainty that she was a victim of the satanic abuse by these day- daycare providers. 100% certainty, huh? Yep. Cool. Yep. Cool. Yeah. How is it to be 100% certain about anything? Well, I don't. The thing is, I don't even know why they could fucking use his testimony. He he had nothing to do with her or the case at all. But he was like, he was somebody who believed in this shit and and pulled it out of his own clients through that repressed memory therapy. And so they just were like, well, you've you have experience getting people to talk about their satanic abuse, so you must be somebody who can who can recognize that here. Christ. Crazy. He sent them to prison. He 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 got them sentenced to 48 years in prison. This man. Wow. Ugh. It's really insane. He said, "I believe that they use a technique of mind control unknown to legitimate psychology. It's akin to hypnosis, created through abuse. The state of shock is so severe that it sends the victim into a deep trance state." I'm sorry. He can say they're using something that we don't even know about. Yeah. Yeah. We have no idea, but I can say with 100% certainty that they're using something that I know 0% about. Well, Deanna, they're informed by the devil. Got it. You know? Cool. So we couldn't possibly know because we are not informed by the devil. They are. Cool. And the devil works in mysterious ways. So I've heard. Yeah. So does God. Weird. He even said that Keller apparently was controlling the uh, jury and other witnesses in the room through hand signals. Like making hand signals and controlling the way that they were thinking and feeling about the whole case. Sweet. Yeah. So it's so... It made every jury member who was potentially sympathetic to them suspicious. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's 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 really crazy. And this guy was he he was considered legitimate. His opinion was considered legitimate, and it was really on the basis of his own testimony that they went to prison for twenty years. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Yeah. So the satanic panic is like technically over, um, especially now that I there might still be one person in jail, actually, if I'm remembering correctly. But for the most part, people who were convicted of crimes during that time of these specific crimes have been exonerated. And now we have heavy metal Christian bands. (laughs) Yeah. So it's fine. Like, it's all fine. Uh, It's all forgiven. Um, But the reality is still that many people cannot and will not accept that satanic cults are not actually responsible for all the terrible things that happen to children like there's this idea that i would much rather the kid in my neighborhood be a victim of a a satanic cult than um a serial child abuser yeah you know but i guess in their minds they're probably connecting that to satan exactly somehow it makes it easier because if your neighbor is if you find out your neighbor this guy you you've known forever and you really like is actually like a horrific person and abusing people it's so much easier to say well it's a satanic cult thing than believe that you so misunderestimated this person right 
misunderestimated. That's not a real word. Misun- misunderstood and underestimated. Sure. I was on board with it. Thank you. But you know, it's like, it's all part of that, like stranger danger. I don't want to believe my neighbor could be capable of these things. So we're going to create this like monster in the dark. So I will just end on this little paragraph from psmag.com because I liked it. But it goes, after leaving a cult, apostates have to essentially relearn how to think for themselves, to come back to reality and slowly rebuild a broken sense of self. In a sense, America must undergo its own deprogramming when it comes to Satanism and the occult. Well, we're not there yet. <laughs> we're not there yet. Until we reject simplistic, inadequate narratives and accept that evil can and does exist independently of demons and malevolent institutions, until we challenge pseudoscientific therapeutic techniques mm. and the members of the mental health community who promote them, until we refute demonic paranoia as the well-worn cultural trope that it is, the wages of the satanic panic will never truly be over. Shit, dude. So yeah, that is my my short uh, Very overview. There is so much. Like, guys, just do some research because, like, the wow. the psychotherapy portion of it alone, yeah, is fascinating. Um, and long and extensive. So I definitely didn't go into that too much this time, but I thought it was worth talking about because we covered the witch trials last time. So we sure did. It's better than a modern day witch trial. Yep. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back for part two of our double stuffed spooktacular double feature on good witches, bad bitches. Wow. Are you a good witch? Or a bad bitch? Let us know by becoming a patron on on our our Patreon. Patreon. (laughs) Oh, no. Patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh, come along with doing our podcast. And the more patrons we get, hopefully the more content we can start creating exclusively for patrons. Yes. So if you are interested in something like that, please become a patron so that we can start creating that content for you. Also, when you become a patron, you will get a shout out on our podcast and we will thank you personally on air. How exciting is that? Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash podcast. All right. So... Uh, in light of the spooking season. The spooking season! Um, I want to start mine by talking about Vampira. Who the fuck is Vampira? Uh-oh. I know nothing. I know zilch. I knew very little. You're I am Jon Snow, I've <laughs> just been told. <laughs> no, oh, but no. she's great and created an archetype that is still used by... Sexy lady goths to this day. So my sources this week. Boingboing.net. Huffington Post. Los Angeles Times. uh, Bloodydisgusting.com. Oh, I love them. Yep. Groovyhistory.com. And Wikipedia. Fuck yeah. So um, this first (coughs) article uh, written by W. Scott Poole is uh, specifically about Vampira. So. Uh, Digme Vampiro was like nothing that had yet appeared in television's brief existence up to that point. 
Premiering on April 30th, 1954, it 54? became yeah, it oh. became an instant hit in the Los Angeles area. Oh, and then wow. things exploded. And as you just saw, she mm-hmm. walked screaming out of the white smoke, a black-clad goddess of death, exuding aggressive sex. Her eyes held just a tinge of threat. Her nails phallic daggers of implied violence. Ooh. Waist shrunken to a ghastly circumference. The, I mean, t- she was 36, 17, 36 with her corset. 17? 17 inch waist. Oh uh-huh. my lord. Her eyebrows archly painted, her long black hair swirling around behind her. She shocked, titillated, angered, obsessed, and she called herself Vampira. Wow. She introduced every show with a scream, a blood-curdling extrusion that had to issue out of some cavern too big, dark, and lonely to live inside of her impossible figure. She screamed and looked directly at the camera, a both uh, a goth garbo who sees the eye of Ooh. the audience refusing to become a simple object of their regard. A goth garbo is the best description I've yeah. ever heard. Oh, I just got goosebumps. Yes, it's so good. Uh-huh. She seduced them with the offer of a night of B-movies, horror <laughs> and sci-fi fare, mostly execrable, but seasoned with her spicy sweetness and her undertone of aggression that radiated underneath heavy white <laughs> pancake makeup. Nobody could turn off the TV. It was 1954. Myla Nurmi screamed in a post-war America of chilling optimism, everyday repressions, and awkward silences. She was the child of Finnish immigrants, a runaway in the 30s who worked as an actor, a model for softcore men's magazines, and a burlesque dancer. Jesus. She had a taste for the macabre that led her to delve into the sediment of mid-century America until it yielded its dark treasures. I love the way this article is written. Which article is this? This is the boingboing.net one. Oh, man. Yeah. A pinup model who found herself turned into the 50s American middle-class housewife. She refashioned herself to escape the confines of cultural expectation. Mm. Nermi had explored the tangled underside of the country since the mid-1940s. An underground gothic land lived beneath the sunlit world of post-war America. As a young runaway, she performed in a New York horror burlesque show known as Spook Scandals that had called for her to rise out of a coffin and scream. There, she began to craft the character of Vampira, thinking about how the sexy and the horrific could intertwine. Oh my god! A dance between Eros and Thanatos. (laughs) So excited. Uh, uh-huh. I just, I find that so crazy because also we learned that the Adams Family comic premiered in the late 30s. So like Morticia Adams. Holy shit, Was what? clearly an inspiration too. Oh, fuck. Because Morticia Adams has been around since the 30s. I did not know that. She's like with the cinched waist and the tall and yeah. the, like clearly inspired. Um, this is, what's so insane to me is that it's happening so early. Like, goths have been around forever. forever. And I did not know. I mean, people, the Victorians wow. were obsessed with taking photos of dead people. Yes, like, that's it's just true. a whole thing. And, like, your, your, your um, episode about that woman who was obsessed with selfies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the French courtier. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, wow, yeah. Good By point. 1946, Nermi stood on the verge of wider fame after being cast in a Howard Hawks production called Dreadful Hollow with a screenplay written by William Faulkner. This would have been Faulkner's first and only foray into the world of gothic horror. Oh, wow. Indeed, it would have become his vampire movie. Ah, the production what? collapsed in development, though it also became Nermi's ride to L.A., a way to reach Hollywood and breathe the tinseled air full of fantasy and promise. Oh, also, man. please look at this picture. 
Oh my her head God. is like shaved except for the front part of it. Well, and her eyebrows have been like shaved painted. Off. Yeah, and painted on. Way up high on her forehead. Yeah, no, she looks like the most amazing 1940s, 50s goth mm-hmm. I've ever seen. Yep. Uh, walking through the glitzy caverns of mostly broken dreams, Nermi <laughs> discovered limited success in what the era called modeling magazines. Oh, God. She appeared in, uh, as a centerfold in glamorous models, blonde and voluptuous, but with a hint of mystery. Even while crafting her blonde bombshell character, she made sure the shadowy aspect of her persona grew. In her modeling career, she experimented with an outrageous variety of looks that borrowed in equal parts from Lauren Bacall, pulp science fiction, B-movie horror, and the American tradition of burlesque. Ugh. Marriage to screenwriter Dean Reisner, Reisner, who later scripted Play Misty for Me and Dirty Harry provided her with some financial security. Marriage also transformed her into a housewife who worked part-time as a hat check girl. Whoa. She was determined to find ways to break out of the bonds of domestic containment. In this period, (laughs) she later claimed she dreamed of becoming a traveling evangelist in the mold of the 30s religion and glamour diva Amy Semple McPherson, which I read about her. Uh, what? She was like the first celebrity TV evangelist. (gasps) Like, she was gorgeous. Oh, my God. And, like, lied about being kidnapped to Mexico and coming. It's weird. Okay, if you don't talk about her at some point, I will be so fucking mad at you. (laughs) Nermi hoped to unite the weirdness of America's religious underground with the increasingly marginalized carnival world of the sideshow. Oh, my God. I love her already. She planned to tour with a tent, call herself Sister St. Francis, proclaim world peace, perhaps put on uh, display some psychic abilities that she had and make boatloads of cash. Unfortunately, (laughs) such an endeavor required capital that she did not have. She had no idea what steps to take that would allow her to uh, launch such an ambitious plan. So she waited, stuck with her husband in their common law marriage that still managed to replicate the revival of domestic values so important to post-war America. She modeled for photographers, checked coats and hats, and waited. Her break, she thought, came at a Halloween party in 1953. Dance choreographer Lester Horton, famous for his work in the Tarzan films of the 30s, invited to his his annual Halloween ball. For the occasion, Nermi created an early version of Vampira, a prototype creature with long black hair and a black cocktail dress, a kind of bride of Dracula that owed something to Caroline Borland's fae vampire child in Mark of the Vampire and a a Mm. bit to Gloria Holden's sapphic seducer in Daughter of Dracula. Oh. Which um, this party, apparently, I'm sure it'll talk about this later, but uh, is very much, uh, they talked about it being a big gay mafia party. So it was like all of the underground gays of Hollywood at the time would throw these parties. And so they expected you to come camp. Yes. So you would have to come high camp to these parties in order to impress. Which I assume is like kind of the precursor to drag. Yeah. Yeah. Camp drag and dance. Um, But even amidst this whole party, she like stood out in her like goth glam. I'm sure. Thing. Like because nobody really was doing that at the time, I assume. I I would think so. Other than in the Adams Family comic. Yeah. Uh, She won the grand prize for best costume. Uh, And a producer named Hunt Stromberg Jr. He produced for Los Angeles's KABC, KABC TV had the idea that he could use the character in connection with a late night horror show he hoped to create. He wanted to show horror and sci-fi films, B-pictures mostly, to late night audiences. Oh, wow. The pictures he could show without risking copyright infringement were mostly dreadfully shot and acted. 
He knew he needed a gimmick, a host to leaven the celluloid lump with humor, maybe a little sex, <laughs> and something indefinable that would give his wretched list of flicks some sizzle. Oh, that's so smart, though. Dig Me Vampiro was nothing that had yet appeared in television's brief existence, and it became an in- instant hit in the L.A. area. I believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, all that camp. All that camp. And she, but like, the again, the intersection of scary and sexy... Right. There's something very compelling about it. I would completely agree with that. And I think we see that a lot more now. Like mm-hmm. we see that at play in our mm-hmm. content, you know, in our artistic content. But it content, wasn't but so common back then. Yeah. No. Very subversive back then. Crazy. Um, she had a Life magazine photo shoot that helped her kind of reach a broader audience. Um, wow. She appeared on a show alongside Lon Chaney Jr. and Bella Lugosi, also two well-known oh. horror actors. Wait, Bella Lugosi was Bride of Frankenstein? Dracula. Dracula. Okay, okay. Mm. Um, and she hung out with James Dean and his entourage at a place called Googie's Restaurant. <laughs> it was one of the few late night oh. uh, spots in 1950s Hollywood, so things would that would be open late night god someone make me a movie about all of this please right all of this uh she became part of the night watch is what that group of people was called they're all aspiring actors and actresses and directors that hovered around james dean and it was before he even had his big break so he was already like magnetic and Mm -hmm. like drawing people in um interesting ratings for her show shot through the roof in the year to come and she seemed to be on the verge of major stardom but the network canceled her contract around the time of the death of James Dean. Oh. Despite her popularity, she had, like, found herself entangled in a web of controversy that I think could only be possible in the 1950s. Like, it wouldn't have happened now. Oh. So it was like, she was already kind of cutting edge because she was gothic sexy, which yes. is kind of creepy. And so people were like, that's yeah. a little bit weird. But it's like, oh, but she's actually just like a normal housewife. And she likes to play dress up at night. Mm. But then she was going through a divorce. And so she wasn't just your normal average, like, sweet housewife. She's a a divorced woman, which was a big deal back then. Yeah. And then her association with James Dean when he died, she apparently tried to, like, play up her association with him and said she could speak to him through the veil and that that they were closer than they maybe actually were. And so people were kind of like, what the fuck is going on with you? Um, she was a fucking weirdo goth at a time yes. when weirdo goths were not really, like, socially acceptable. Right. Yeah. So they decided to cancel her show. Oh. Um, so by the late 1950s, her television career was over, and she lived with her mom on unemployment. Mm, baby. Uh, she appeared in the Ed Wood-directed film Plan 9 from Outer Space that, while later a cult hit, barely had any audience at all in its first years of existence. <sighs> True and lasting stardom never came calling for her again. Oh, no. By the 1960s, she supported herself as a tile contractor. What? Yeah. Oh, There were also stories that were completely unfabricated and untrue that she had been in porn. Um, Not that that would have been that big of a deal, but it's untrue. Yeah, Um, unfounded. She became a figure of local legend in the West Hollywood scene, which makes sense because she's high camp. Yeah. Um, (laughs) She disappeared. But then thrived in the cultural underground. Myla Nurmi hung out with the punk metal band The Misfits in the 80s. Okay. In places like West Hollywood Vinyl Fetish. Apparently they wrote a song about her. Oh. Yeah, which song? Vampire. 
Vampira. Oh, okay. There's a song called Vampira about the actual Vampira. All right. Yep. Amazing. She worked on a book she never finished, which Aww. was a memoir of the underbelly of 1950s Hollywood. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> that stayed up late nights at Googie's Restaurant, Pop Pills, and lived off the warm glow of stardom it stalked. Whoa. Um, she died alone in 2008. No, baby. And that's kind of maybe all we need to know of her story is what this uh, author argues. It's more or less all that can be known. Her influence has spread far and wide. There may not be a horror convention where her visage doesn't influence the tattooed seductress cosplayers. Not a horror host who doesn't owe something to her camp humor. No mistress of the night anywhere whose ultimate origin point cannot be traced to this runaway late night comedian. Uh, She borrowed from many of the ghosts that haunted American culture, elements that never before brought together with the kind of sexual energy and threatening cultural pose that Vampira adopted. She described her character as a monster crafted out of the elements of American history, the terrors of the Great Depression and the post-war style of the beats, the beatniks. She raises question about everything we thought we knew about the American 50s. I mean, truly. But I will say in the 1980s, the early 1980s, they wanted to revive her show, The Vampire Show. So she came on with the producers, and they were in the midst of producing this show. Uh-oh. And she really wanted to cast Lola Falana as the new vampire. Uh, this is Lola oh. Falana. Oh. The producers did not want to cast Lola Falana. Mm-hmm. And allegedly, that was enough for her to go, well, I'm walking away. And what is it about Lola Falana that... Lola Falana is a black performer. I don't know if that's why the producers didn't want her. But that's she was a, a burlesque performer and an actress. And that's who uh, she wanted. Yeah. But because she owned the rights to the character of Vampira. Really? When she walked away... Oh. They had to shift the show a little bit. Mm. Hence the creation of Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Holy shit. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Exactly. My mind is blown. My mind is totally blown. Right? So actress Cassandra Peterson literally just answered a casting call for a late night horror show and she got the role and then had to create her own thing because she couldn't be Vampira. Oh, my God. And Norma Murney actually sued her mm-hmm. for stealing her personage. And she lost, which is why she died so destitute and all oh. that. Which obviously Elvira is clearly similar in a way, but way more camp. Well, if the actress had to create it in, a, she, in her own, like if she had to create it and she didn't know what she was creating it from, I get why it's like original. Yeah. You know. And and it's not her fault. She answered an ad no. and, and, and did an audition and got God, a part no. and she totally made it her own. So now I'm going to shift and I want to talk a little bit about Elvira. Oh, oh my God. You're blowing <laughs> my mind right now. This is the best. Oh, quick fact, though, about Myla Nurmi before we move on. Yeah. She, it was confirmed from her diaries after she died and the Disney archivists, she was the model for Maleficent. Oh. Which, if you look at just a picture of her when she's not in character, you can totally, the high yes. cheekbones and the very distinct sharp chin. Yeah. 
Yes, you absolutely she, see it. It's Maleficent. <gasps> oh my god. Which is so crazy. Wow. I just wanted to point that out. That was a random tidbit fact I found out. And I'm sure they never ever hired her to come in and like Maybe I think they hired her to come model for them. Oh, did they? But, okay. That I mean that's good. But because... it was just kind of under wraps because nobody paid attention to that kind of thing. Right. At that time. Wow though, man. Um, ah! so Cassandra Peterson is still playing Elvira to this day. Uh, oh my God. Wait, Elvira's still going? Elvira's still going. Holy shit. And she taught October is her biggest uh, month of the, the year. And that's I when she makes her it. most money. And she never wants to stop playing Elvira. So these people, these producers said, hey, we need an actress to come in and create her own character in order to do the show. And she said, OK, I'll come in. And then she created Elvira. Yes. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is so interesting. Oh, yes. Because I know Elvira. Mm-hmm. I know Elvira. It makes me sad that I know her and I don't know Vampira, but now I You've do. You've probably seen pictures of her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, potentially. Maybe like it's just because. Like this kind of thing? Like this is. Yeah, that's true. Like, it's just very Betty Page slash Morticia. I know. That is insane. Yeah. It's a goth Betty Page. And so I can see, like, I've probably seen pictures of her and, mm-hmm. and things and with her before. And never, but just never really never, thought about it. Yeah, never put two and two together. Yep. She created her equal parts spooky, sexy, and goofy character in 1981 when she was hired to host a local LA TV station's weekly horror movie series. Amazing. Similar beginnings. Yep. And has spent the last 37 years titillating viewers with her trademark <sighs> mix of wit, camp, and humor. So... One of the things that I learned about her is that she was a Groundlings improv actress. So she's like a solid comedy actress who was in the same um, uh, class as uh, 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 Phil Hartman and Peter Rubin. Paul Rubin. Rubin. Pee Wee Herman. Oh, man. Oh, my God. I'm embarrassed. I didn't know that. Sorry, Mom. But also, (laughs) she like grew up part of the time in Colorado. What? Which is crazy. Um, her first entree into horror, her cousin Danny taking her downtown to Chief Theater in Colorado Springs to see the house on Haunted Hill. Oh so, my God. yeah, she was like a young person in Colorado Springs. I don't know if that was she, where she was born or whatever, but she kind of came of age in Colorado Springs. Wow. Um, so she started developing an obsession with horror. And so she kind of always had that sort of macabre. Uh, aspect to her personality she also apparently was um really young like two or three and she knocked over a pot of boiling water onto herself so she had like scarring on her body 35 percent of her body so kids would make fun of her because she was a fan of horror and also because she was quote-unquote monstrous with all of her scars so she coped with comedy as so many people who As so many people have do. been traumatized in some way do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, she says she was going on auditions every day. At this point, she was in L.A. We're going to jump around. Um, considered herself a comedy actress. Um, this is when she was doing The Groundlings, but she wasn't working. She was a hostess at a restaurant going on auditions, did bit parts yeah. on TV shows. And a friend of hers told her about an audition for a horror host on a TV station. Didn't pay anything because it was local TV, but she thought, I love horror. That would be awesome. That's amazing. Yes. God damn. So the director came and saw her at one of her Groundlings shows where she was doing a Valley Girl character. <laughs> and uh, so she was like playing a character that was like kind of sexy and an actress looking for work and talked like a Valley Girl. Yep. And the director told her that he wanted her to come in with that character when she came in for her audition. And she was like, OK, that's not 
spooky, but okay, sure, if that's what you want me to do. So she did that, and everybody loved it. And so that's why they hired her. Based on that. Based, based on, on her comedic Valley Girl character. <laughs> oh, my God. But then wow. they said, but we want you to dress spooky. Oh. And so she had to come up with a whole spooky costume. And she did with one of her best friends, uh, whose name was Robert Redding, who apparently died not long after she got the part <clears throat> uh, of AIDS, which was really sad. Oh. But he was an artist and a, uh, helped her create the costume. God. Came up with all sorts of ideas and thought that uh, the character should look like Sharon Tate in the Fearless Vampire Killers, which was like a sheer <laughs> light colored dress with it was tattered and long curly red hair. And Ooh. they were like, no, we want you in all black, obviously, because it was Vampira. Yep. Initially. Yep. So that's the kind of thing they were going for. But she did, I guess, didn't really know that. So they were like, oh. we want you in all black. And why would they tell her that? But that's the thing is that when Myla sued her. Oh, it was like the producers told her specifically to dress in all black and, right. her, you know, anyway. they made her create that character in a yes. specific way. Yes. Oh, because they knew what they wanted to go for. <sighs> Fucking God damn it. Mm. So they went with something as low cut and as sexy as possible. Uh, and the makeup of uh, Elvira is inspired by Kabuki theater. Oh, OK. Which is really cool, which is like the pale face and yep. the stark blush yep. and all that. So they took a kabuki theater inspired look and turned it spooky. spooky okay. Kabuki. Spooky kabuki. <laughs> the wig oh, no. was inspired by Robert's favorite girl group, the Ronettes. Okay. Based the wig on Ronnie Spector. Oh, man. Then since it was the 80s, she said, we threw in a little leather and some studs on the belt and around the wrists. Of course. How could you not? Yep. <laughs> and so. Oh, man. One of the things that Elvira is known for is her trademark cleavage. She's got like some serious cleavage. Yep. And she says, uh, the funny thing was I basically had always made a career with my cleavage. So doing it with Elvira was no different. I started out as a go-go dancer when I was 14 years old. Oh, wow. Which apparently back then she explains is more like tall boots and a short dress. Yeah. So it's not like she was... A stripper. Yeah. It's a completely different thing. She started out as a go-go dancer at a gay bar in Colorado Springs. (laughs) and the funny thing is at 14 she like went into this bar and was like hanging out was like there's a lot of hot dudes in here i should come here more no no (laughs) oh cassandra i'm sorry yeah but hey she's a gay icon now yes i mean yes you know she was 17 she moved to las vegas and became the youngest showgirl in la in las vegas history la history oh my god she says, I still think I hold that record, which makes sense because they're not going to hire anyone to be a showgirl. No. Especially today. No. Younger than that. They know better. Yeah. I think they're actually fairly regulated. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So while she was in uh, Las Vegas doing a showgirl thing, apparently she had an evening with Elvis when she was 17 years old. <laughs> oh, as you do. As you do. <laughs> um, he like came to see one of the shows in. 69 or 70 and invited all the girls back to his hotel room which was of course like the the penthouse suite in whatever hotel <laughs> okay because he like couldn't go down because he'd be swarmed so he he's was, elvis it, yeah he's know. elvis um and she <laughs> says since i was the youngest of the showgirls i was 17 and i think the next youngest dancer was 28 or 29 wow. he instantly glommed on to me i think he liked him young judging by priscilla right 
He was going through a divorce with her at that time, and everyone wonders what happened between him and me. But you have to remember, I was underage, so nothing did go on except some kissing. Wink, I'm sure. Oh, come on. She says ultimately it was very innocent, like he was constantly surrounded by his handlers and like they could never really get any privacy. But that he he hung out with her all night and gave her the advice like, don't stay here. Oh, it was kind of shitty. I think the way he went about it was like, you're too good for this town. You don't want to wind up in your 30s and old maid and still stuck here. He right. like said basically that. Ow. Yeah, a basically showgirl that. that I invite to my hotel room. Yeah. He's yeah. like, you have a, a nice singing voice. Go get a singing teacher and move somewhere where you can shift your careers. Like, you are you're, you can't dance after you're 24 or 25. So okay. think of what you want to do because you have more talent than that. I guess that explains why my hips hurt in the morning. Oh, for sure. We're too old. <laughs> um, but he said, if you really want to be in show business, you have to get out of Las Vegas. Crazy. All right. Um, Anyway, so she did that. She went and got a singing coach and she moved to L.A. I mean, if Elvis tells you to. If Elvis tells you. So she booked Elvira and started doing this. Amazing. And it was on a local TV channel. So she didn't really think it was like that much exposure. Right. Right. But then her phone started ringing. She was working daytime as a secretary. And doing this at night. Oh. And then her phone just started ringing off the hook because um, your phone number was listed in the the white pages. Oh, my God. That's right. And so because her name was in the credits, people just start calling her and her phone was ringing so much off the hook where she was like, oh, my God, I guess I I guess people are actually watching this. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, And so she had to have her phone disconnected and her number changed. And she was very confused because she just thought that the job was kind of like this fun little side job. Didn't realize it was going to be a career defining sort of situation. Right. And and little did she know it was going to be the role that made her. She didn't know who Vampira was. No. So, I mean, the, all the people who were looking for Vampira, I assume, saw her and went, oh, yes, the, the person to replace the, the Vampira right, I or loved. new fans. Because yeah. that was in the 50s. This is in the 80s. It's, you know, a long time. Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe a little bit of the old fans, but a lot of new fans. Yeah. Who didn't even know who Vampira was. Was Vampira on, also on, like, public TV? Mm-hmm. or Okay. Yeah. yeah, but she was only on for a year. It was, wow. like, less than a year. Um, yeah. But um, she talks about how she owns the character and gets every profit from every Elvira theme product. She says that when she first started, she kept asking the station for a raise. She was there for seven years. <laughs> and after a couple years, the show was syndicated nationally, but they wouldn't give me a raise. <sighs> so in lieu of my raise, my ex-husband, who managed me with his partner, asked for the rights to have a fan club. And the station said yes. Oh. Then we asked for the rights to have Elvira appear on other shows. And they said yes. And we asked for this right and that right. And one day we realized we owned all of the rights to Elvira. (laughs) We didn't feel bad about it because I was being uh, paid so incredibly little. Yeah. It was the station's number one rated show. They were clearly taking advantage I did the first 3D television show that had ever been broadcast, and they th- they sold 3D glasses at 7-Eleven. I think they sold oh the glasses for $3 a pair, and the show only aired in Los Angeles, and I think they sold something like 2.7 million pairs of glasses. So Holy multiply that fuck. by three, that's a lot of money, and I got $350. <gasps> no! So when people say I cheated the station out of the rights, I say, I don't think so. No! 
Oh my god, people say that? Yes. Oh, fuck those people. She created this character. I mean, yes, she did not know who Vampira was, but she created this character for herself. Yeah. And, the, and they the were station, paying her three hundred fifty dollars a week. And great that they got to use that for the for the time that they had it. Mm. But you know that that time is over. It's gone beyond them now. Oh man! So she still owns the character, one hundred percent. Oh man! Um. So, whenever you see something that features Elvira, I'm making money off of it. That's why when people say to me, "Don't you feel typecast? Do you do you ever want to stop playing Elvira?" I say, "Hell to the no! Are you out of your mind?" <laughs> Like, that has kept her financially stable for almost 40 years. Um, And she talks about, in this article, growing old in Hollywood and how sometimes that can be hard. But that, ultimately, she feels super lucky because she is so drastically different looking out of character. Right. That people don't recognize her as frequently as they would Mm -hmm. other celebrities. God, that's so smart. Um. And then I thought this was, would be an interesting way to kind of close it. Um, she talks about uh, Trump and says, ah. I really do think there's a correlation between Trump and his administration and there being more horror movies and more people wanting to watch horror movies right now. It's about people looking for a way to take their minds off of the real horror that is Donald Trump. What he's doing to this country, he's ruining our democracy right before our eyes and no one seems to be standing up to him. It's way, way scarier than any horror movie that could, uh, could exist. And I do think it's caused a resurgence in these movies. There were all the Godzilla movies when the Cold War was going on and people were afraid of nuclear proliferation. It became really popular. The giant rat movies, the giant leech movies, because it was people taking their minds off of something that was terrifying and putting it on something they could relate to. Everyone can relate to a giant leech, especially <laughs> if you live in Washington, D.C. And that's the basic. She's right. of Elvira. Elvira Amazing. and Vampira, two goth queens that have created a whole genre, basically, on their own with inspiration from Morticia Adams and the Adams family. I am, I am so impressed. <laughs> that was, I mean, like, really, that was... Uh, Vampira alone would have been amazing. The fact that you brought Elvira into it and talked about how she was inadvertently inspired by that character. She was. Is really incredible, especially because Elvira became her own thing. Like, she did not know a vampire, so she... At least we assume she didn't. Or wait, what's her name? Cassandra Peterson? Yeah. Yeah, she created her own character in a lot of ways based on this character she did not know she was basing it off of. And has made her life's work. Yeah. Out of that. It's kind of sad to see that these two women were kind of pitted against each other because I think that uh, Vampira was, she was just bitter and for good reason. Because yeah. Because she was kind of cast aside and had her 15 minutes of fame. And then because she was weird and because yeah. she was divorced wasn't really given an opportunity to become the star that she deserved to be. So when she saw this woman capitalizing on a trope that she helped create, Mm -hmm. she was very angry and bitter toward her. Yeah. Which is upsetting because I don't think that Cassandra really feels the same way about about, uh, Myra. Yeah. And so... But I also thought it was interesting that she wanted to cast a black woman to play the new vampire. 
And that was what made her go, mm, I'm out. You guys she was are like, yeah, this is the right person. She's the right person to be casting. And the idea that, like, that's not good enough. And I don't, I obviously cannot speak to their motivation or what was in their heads at the time. Right. But, I mean, I will say the fact that, like, Elvira is the one who sort of took her place and became the star in her place does say something about what they thought mm-hmm. about Vampira's preferred casting. Yeah. What's interesting, though, is that Lola Falana apparently, like, had some health trouble and had, like, an aneurysm or a stroke or something only a few years after 1981. And, uh, like, the left side of her face kind of wasn't working very well. Oh. And she became a devout Christian. So it's just, <gasps> it's really funny. <gasps> like, a devout Catholic. And oh, she God. she says that her faith is what healed her. Okay. So it's interesting to think that, you know, had they cast Lola, the character probably would not have been as everlasting. That's a good point. As it became with Cassandra playing Elvira. That is a very good point. You know, it's funny. We watched um, Signs last night. Oh, that movie's so good. They talk a little bit. They talk a little bit about that. Like how like everything happens for a reason. And like there are signs that tell you that certain choices are the right choices. And I get that, you know, the main character is a, a Catholic in and out of, you know, his faith. But it is interesting um, well, and I that mean, you, if you think about that, like how if the if Vampira, if if sorry. Myla had gotten her way, her preferred person potentially would not have been able to do much more acting. Yeah. So that, I, that I don't know. That's fascinating to think about, isn't it? Yeah. And this way, a new character was able able to, you know, grow and become a a thing that we all know and love today. Yeah. Super campy, super witchy and creepy. Yeah. Goth. Totally goth. I just, it does make me sad for for Myla because, like, she clearly was just ahead of her time. Yeah. And it sucks that she had to be the person to pioneer that because, yes, obviously Morticia Adams was a a character in some way. A cartoon. But that was it. You know, maybe we wouldn't even have Morticia today if somebody, a real live person, hadn't put on that costume and shown that it was possible. Because you think about Adam's family that came out when we were kids with Angelica Houston. Mm-hmm. She looks just like Vampira. Vampira. Absolutely. Oh, God. And I love those movies so right? much. Right? They're yes. so good. They are so good. They're so good. They're so good. But she looks just like Myla Nermy. Yeah. Myla yep. Nermy. Maleficent. Yeah, that to me is like that's crazy mm. that she was the 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 facial inspiration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, those cheekbones, man. It's the cheekbones and the chin. They're crazy. Yeah, sharp and pointy and very. She's very delicious. Finnish. You know, she's very Nordic like. Mm, yeah, sharp. good point. Mm-hmm. That waist, Jesus Christ! I don't know how she trained her waist down to seventeen inches. That's <laughs> it's upsetting almost. Anyway, like I thought bit. that would be a nice, lighthearted, sort of spooky, like thing to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved that. Those I loved goth, every those second goth of girls. that. Oh God, those goth girls! Those goth girls before there were goth girls. Yep, and the really long talon oh, fingernails. Those amazing. are huge today. 
That's like what fucking Kylie Jenner has, a big, giant, long fucking fingernails. That is such a good point that that is so in vogue right now, and mm-hmm. that was clearly pioneered by Vampira in the 1950s. Yeah. I think that's amazing. Yeah. What a good choice. My God. You just, like, you totally blew my mind. He, it's his idea, TV. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> Alex gives us Well, a because it's up. local Los Angeles TV and stuff. Like, he's, the, he's on the beat for L.A., flavor uh dude that was amazing yours was amazing yours was lots amazing. of spooktacular stuff dude what a great halloween what a great double stuffed spooktacular double feature double stuffed spooktacular double feature not porn right right well not yet what you were the one saying it wasn't pornographic Ah, oh, damn it I didn't say it wasn't pornographic. I said it sounded pornographic. Oh. Now on to the pornographic part. Get ready, JK. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon members. Yeah. <laughs> Our Patreon. You have to pay for don't. this. <laughs> anyway. Oh, no. Hope you guys have a fantastic Halloween. Yeah, Be safe, do. be spooky, be goth, be fun. Ooh, I like that. Let's just end on that. Okay. All right. Peace out, witches. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif. Me. You. And you. <laughs> Hannah Ferguson. And we're produced by Benjamin Garst. Um, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play. Google Play. Pretty and much more. anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gwbbpodcast. <laughs> Become a patron and help us you know, pay for our hosting. Yeah, Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content. And it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast. And it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out. If you like it, you can be a part of it. Also, to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe. All of, the, all of those things are extremely helpful for us. They help other listeners find us. Yeah. Word of mouth, also good. Yeah. <laughs> our website is GWBBpodcast. Cast.com. You can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is powered by Moon Bounce. Moon Bounce.